What's up, all you beautiful people? Welcome back to another episode of The Strange Road. We got episode 54, Rediscovering Ohio's Ancient Earthworks, part two with our buddy Jeffrey Wilson. I mean, this episode was so epic. We had to split it up into two episodes. Jeffrey just absolutely blew our minds. And if you guys really enjoy these episodes, please go get Jeffrey's books, Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley, the expanded editions, and there's several different variations, the paperback and the hardcover, um, different volumes. So be sure to go check those links out in the description. Uh, we appreciate Jeffrey so very much for the information he's bringing to the table. Um, and I, I wanted to talk to you guys real quick about the second annual Frogman Festival, baby. It's March 2nd, 2024, coming right around the corner. And your boys, The Strange Road, will be out there helping out in the AV room again this year. We helped out a little bit last year, and uh, our buddy Jeff Craig from Map and Black throws an amazing festival, so he invited us back again this year. And we also have a booth. Uh, we're going to be selling some merch, hanging out. Um, if you guys want to come out and say hi, Bub will talk your ear off. There's no doubt about that. Bob will talk your ear off. Come and say hi. It'll be a good time. Um, and you guys can find all that information at frogmanfestival.org. Um, the event is at the Oasis Conference Center in Loveland, Ohio, not too far from us in Columbus. If you guys are in central Ohio or the Cincinnati area, you got to get to this. Um, and it's 9.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. Tickets $17.50 for adults, pre-sale, and then 20 bucks at the door. Kids 12 and under are free, so come hang out, guys. It's going to be great. Uh, the sponsors this year are Loveland Magazine, Small Town Monsters, Holly Who Art, and that's right, baby, The Strange Road. So go check all those guys out. Um, this year, the speakers, unbelievable lineup of spe speakers. Jeff Craig did an amazing job getting some high-level talent at this year's festival. We have Sherry Brake, who's a paranormal investigator. Our buddy James Willis is back again for the second year. We had James on the show. Uh, in 2023 he's an author and paranormal researcher investigator surrey angel who has many many talents and is into esoteric and metaphysical uh information and then also jeffrey wilson what do you know author researcher and our good friend is going to be out there giving a talk on i'm not real sure just yet but i know it's going to be epic you guys won't want to miss that and we have Cameron Jones, who is a ufologist and paranormal researcher. And then we have M. Kristen Smith Kevin and Kevin Moore, who are writers and curators and authors. Uh, we have Courtney Block. She's an author, historian, and researcher. And our friend Ashley, who's a Fortean, Ashley Hill, Fortean investigator, is coming back again. So you guys won't want to miss it. Um, we're, I hope you guys enjoy this episode. It's going to be awesome. Uh, if you guys enjoy this, let us know in the comments. Um, without further ado, here's our buddy Jeffrey Wilson filling you guys in a little bit about the UNESCO World Heritage Site status and also expanding on all of the new stuff that he's found uh, with these maps and, and surveys and things that have been hidden to us. Our history has been hidden for so long, and Jeffrey is he's he's exposing all of it so we hope you guys enjoy this much love take care that that brings us to the recently named unesco world heritage sites right uh back in the big end news. of september big news 
uh, the National Park Service, in cooperation with the Ohio History Connection, submitted uh, a bid for sev seven of the sites here in Ohio to meet this UNESCO World Heritage criteria, and uh, it was voted on, and it was awarded that UNESCO World Heritage status. Um, for those that are of the conspiracy-minded, the UN does not own these sites. They contribute no money to these sites. They have no real oversight over these sites. Uh, the United States is not giving away their sovereignty over these sites. It is literally something akin to the AAA seal of approval. Uh, where, you know, the United Nations has voted that it recognize that these are important sites that culturally should be preserved for the entire world. That's cool. All right. And that's that's what these gotcha. that's what that designation is. Chaco Canyon's one. Um, Cahokia's one. Cahokia. Uh, the last man site uh, before these that was named was Poverty Point Poverty, down yep. in Louisiana. Um, now, there was a lot of <clears throat> of uh, sort of political shenanigans to overcome to achieve this. Um, you want the whole story, the long story, or the short story? <laughs> we can go for—I mean, let's get into it. Go for so, it. Yeah. Let's dive into it. Um, the UN, UNESCO organization is their scientific organization. Mm -hmm. And— uh, they have member states around the world. In 1990 or 91, uh, during the first Bush administration, their Congress passed a law that said that the United States could not contribute any money to any international organization that accepted Palestine as a member state. And the following year... UNESCO admitted Palestine as a member state. And so it kicked in law in the United States that United States l legally could not give any more funding, could not pay their dues to UNESCO. Okay. And so that situation is still in place today until this past June. <laughs> Um, that law was in effect all through the uh, Obama administration. And then when uh, Trump was elected, one of the very first actions that the Trump administration did was to withdraw the United States from the UNESCO treaty altogether. Not even a member anymore. Um, and so it was during... The Obama administration, the Obama administration had gone to UNESCO and said, look, this law is in place. We can't give you any cash. We can't, give, we can't pay the dues, but we'll give you all the technical expertise and supplies and whatever we can do to help UNESCO. We just can't pay you the cash because the law says we can't pay you the cash. And that's when Poverty Point was granted UNESCO World Heritage status, first site that the United States has been granted since the law kicked in around 1991. So after Poverty Point, that was the like the last year of the Obama administration, when Trump took over and withdrew the United States, that kind of kicked in the death knell for this whole, you know, mm. Hopewell sites bid for UNESCO World Heritage status. Mm. Until the Biden administration came in, <coughs> 
in the Biden administration back in June reapplied to become a member of UNESCO and agreed to pay back the $600 million in back dues that we the United States owed. And as a result of that, in July, UNESCO voted uh, to readmit the United States as a member. And then at the end of September, they awarded these. <laughs> this, so uh, we haven't UNESCO. paid a dime ever. Well, not since 91. Or oh, since 91. But that covered right. Chaco, that covered Cahokia well, those, those back were, then. Those, yeah, they, those were awarded in the 80s. Okay. Right? Okay. okay. So Cahokia that's, became a World Heritage Site in the 80s. That's Chaco what I came. didn't understand was yeah. if it was yeah. all from 91 okay. or not yeah. from 91. So on, we had nothing when, from 91 okay. to, to Poverty Point, essentially. Wow. And so the wow. process, the process in the United States for submitting this kind of uh, uh, bid is – uh, every 20 years, the uh, National Park Service is in charge of collecting possible nominations. Uh, they put together a list. Wow. And then that list goes to the State Department, and the State Department then can select one heritage site like these earthwork sites and one natural site like the Grand Canyon is sure, a right, site. Sure, right, sure. Right? So you can – each country can submit – one, one, you know, two one per year. Yeah, okay. And so every year UNESCO gets together and they have this big meeting. And this year's meeting was held in Saudi Arabia. Gotcha. And um, they actually broadcast it live on YouTube. I watched it at like 5 o'clock in the morning. Wow. Uh, the, the, the vote happened around 5.30. Um, I actually watched the prior one, which was from Turkey. They nominated a bunch of uh, wooden... Uh, mosques built in the Middle Ages. And uh, so the process is, you know, countries around the world will, you know, make a statement either in support of or they'll ask for an amendment to the nomination or, you know, whatever it is. Uh, when it came to the United States one, not a single country gave a statement in support of or against, no amendments. They voted unanimously, no no abstentions, no votes against, um, and it was done within like three minutes. Wow. You know, like it wasn't very long. Um, the one interesting thing I, I saw was um, UNESCO uh, gives a short like PowerPoint presentation, like two or three slides about the site before the vote. And uh, they go through what are the criteria that makes the site worthy. They have a whole sort of administration regime of, you know, what criteria this would fall under. Right. And so it meets, you know, f number four, you know, and so the, it meets criteria number four or whatever. The one warning that that UNESCO gave was you want to take a guess what they found problematic about the about this they said the sites are absolutely worthy no question about it sites are worthy the warning they had management mhm mm management was in red wow so, not a good look for who uh Ohio History Connection yeah, okay. and uh, National Park Service. Yeah, that's rough. So, wow. So the sites are approved. They're UNESCO World Heritage sites, but uh, obviously management is the problem. So, 
They really said that. Management yeah. where? Of these sites. Of these sites. Ohio History Connection Which manages sites? the well, UNESCO. They didn't identify the specific. They just said management. <laughs> That's what That's I'm saying. You're it, saying it Ohio History Connection. Which sites are we talking about? The UNESCO World Heritage these, Sites that we just got. Hopewell Culture Which sites. ones? All the of them. Six. Yeah, oh, that's what I'm saying. Seven, yeah. So, is it management at each one of them? We don't know. That's they, what didn't, I'm they didn't identify yeah, it specifically. I, I, I would imagine that in some report somewhere it details that out, but they but, didn't report so that out. So, it's like, hey, we want to give you this, and we did, but we're still really concerned that you guys are going to basically screw up. Blowing it. Right. Well, blow one it. of the things I do know is that. Uh, you know, UNESCO officials came and visited all these sites on a couple of different tours, and one of the main points of feedback was that they said, we will never approve these sites as long as there's a golf course at the Newark Earthworks. Yeah, that was a problem. Now, is there a golf course at the Newark Earthworks today? Yes. The golf course is still there. Yep. So what changed? Well, $600 million from the United States probably, you know, made a big difference. Yeah. Um, but... There's also the court cases has sort of been adjudicated that the Ohio History Connection has the legal authority to kick the golfers out, but there's still a court case pending as to how much they have to pay, right? So uh, yeah, you can't just take the land. And basically. that that uh, Are actually they still that court case was supposed to start in October and has been delayed. So um, we don't know what the resolution of that is going to be or when it's going to be, but that has to go to a jury to decide what the value of the property is that that needs to be awarded to the golfers to leave, because the court had already decided that yes, you can use eminent domain Ohio History Connection. But you must pay fair market value. So the, the, the dispute is now, well, what is the fair market value of the priceless earthworks? Wow. Right? So that's where, that's where the issue is. And so just to be clear for our listeners, the site we're talking about right now is the octagon, which is a part of a much bigger earthwork called the Newark Earthworks. Yes. A really famous part of it is the circle, which is this giant, beautiful circle, but that's open to the public. That's in a park, yes. Yes. The mm -hmm. part, another giant, huge part of this is this amazing lunar calendar, yeah. the great octagon. Octagon connected to a big circle. Which and is there is covered by a golf course. Which that's uh, just mind blowing. An old country club that's been around for over a hundred years has yes. been leasing the, the land or the, bought the land. They've been leasing it. The, okay. the the country club has been leasing it long before it was the property was turned over to the Ohio Historical Society back in the day. The way it went was there was a garden club in in the city of Newark that decided to purchase it and preserve it. And they first allowed the golfers to create the golf course and golf there. And then they turned the property over eventually to the city of Newark. The city of Newark then turned the property over to the state of Ohio. The state of Ohio turned around and gave it to the private corporation of the Ohio Historical Society, now known as the Ohio History Connection. And so that's where the China chain of property mm -hmm. went. Um, the, but the golf course has been there f yeah. throughout all of that, and yeah. they 
continued to maintain the property and they continue to golf there. And you know, so right now they have not been kicked out. They're no. still operating the still country operate. club. Okay. Yes. Now, where do you see this going? You said it depends on the court cases, but I mean, eventually, is this country club going to have to shut down and it's going to turn into like a gift shop and a museum I would imagine that and that all this probably UNESCO? Is the goal, yeah. Uh, by the Ohio History Connection Corporation. Um, and it you know, is. A I, I saw one interesting comment in one of the papers on one of the articles about this: is that oh, we're trading. Uh, a group of uh, elites hitting a little white ball, managing the site to a, another group of elites who are going to charge you money to get in to look at it. You know, like that's what we're doing here with this site. Sadly. Um, but it will ostensibly be open to the public, although I would expect that they're going to start charging nominal world heritage prices like what Stonehenge yeah. charges, you know, $40 a ticket to get in to look at it. Um, no, they, they're not telling everybody that that's what they're going to do, but obviously they're going to have to pay millions of dollars to get the golfers out of there. Yes. Uh, one of the complications in the court case, which was particularly interesting, was the court told both parties to go and get a property assessment done. Mm -hmm. And uh, both parties went off and did that. Well, the Ohio History Connection went and got their property assessment, didn't like it, thought it was too high. So they went and found another property assessor to give them a lower number. But they didn't disclose that to the court or to the other party, the golfers. That actually is illegal under Ohio law. And so there's a penalty for that, which is spelled out in the law, which is that at the end of the jury trial to determine what the value of the property is, they can be assessed up to 10 times the amount of the value of the property as the penalty for trying to lie to the court over the amount of the value of the oh, property. Shut what? Up. Yeah. And really? Under eminent domain. Wow. And, and so, you know, let's say, let's say, wow. like, the, the golfers say they can't, they can't relocate for less than $20 million. The the now Ohio History well, Connection the Ohio History Connection offered them eight hundred thousand dollars. Now you're talking about like a major country club building that you know is like made out of stone. That's a historical structure built in you know like the 1930s, yeah. and all the other improvements and everything else, and the value of the lease of the property, a swimming pool. Which, which, by the way, the Ohio History Connection went to the golfers. Back in the, in the late 90s, as they were going through their financial crisis, and got them to re-up their lease for an additional 75 years. Shut up. So the lease doesn't run yeah, out until the, like the yeah. 26th. Because they were broke. So they screwed right? themselves. And so they have to buy out the value of that entire lease. Now, what is that worth? It's in the millions, Right. Well, that's what the golfers are arguing. Ohio History Connect is saying, no, 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 it's not. It's only worth, you know. 800 grand. So obviously a jury is going to come down somewhere in between there, maybe. But then you have the penalty phase. You know, like let's say they come back and it's $10 million. What's 10 times 10? Are they going to pay $100 million? They don't have $100 million. They don't have $10 million. So I expect that at some point the Ohio History Connection is going to go with their, you know, hat in hand to the Ohio State Legislature, the taxpayers are going to end up paying for this thing. That's where I think it's going to end up, which is practically criminal that we're going to be paying all this money so a private corporation can own this site. 
should be a public thing. If 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 Ohio taxpayer this money ends ridiculous. up funding this whole thing, it should be open to this is the ridiculous for taxpayers paying all that for money. Free, yeah. But we've already paid for it. But yeah. you better not be charging me parking lot fees, brother. <laughs> Whoever is running the operation at Ohio History Connection, first of all, this is wrong. This is wrong. You're you're caught in. Well, it's it's one of these things. You nobody likes the fact that the golfers are golfing on the sacred site. But they were the ones that they preserved it for seventy five years. Exactly. They preserved it. What do you the mean octagon you don't like would have been gone. You can't right. sell out the rights and then say, "Oh, but, we don't like see, what's happening is, here." The thing is, is that this oh, UNESCO like, World Heritage bid came after they already. Matter. Up the, their morals or their their convictions weren't in question before when they had somebody willing to pay 75 years worth of a lease. So what is yes. what is more value to the Ohio History Connection Corporation? The well, value now. of the lease from the golfers or the big brass ring for tourism money? Oh, I that's think what that. I think is going on yeah. behind the scenes. Oh, I well, think that's Ohio a, History Connection, it. now you understand why us kooky podcasters and weirdos are always talking about institutions <laughs> like you well, what we, because not just them. you always do shady shit. Not just them. The Smithsonian did. They all We've do it. We've already discussed and the Smithsonian screwing up this whole And you guys are going to skate by with. this whole thing, Ohio History Connection. You're going to skate through this whole thing, and we're going to be stuck with the goddamn bill. It's like the uh, and that's just the way it works. And they're yeah, gonna say, I'm, "Hey, I, just I, I, suck it up." That's where I think it's gonna go. And, and people that actually I'd be happy visit to be these wrong places, about it. you're gonna charge I hope me you're wrong about it. But you're I'm gonna not. go. I'm gonna go to the the octagon. I'm gonna go to that. Me. I'm gonna end up paying you more money after <laughs> I've already paid you. Like, come on, yeah. man. So in any event, let's go through a couple of what got named. So Mound City, which is the small sort of rounded square up there um, in the top of this uh, illustration. Uh, this is the lithograph in ancient monuments. Uh, that is the where the headquarters building is and the museum for the Hopewell Culture National Historic Park is. And... Uh, Mound City was excavated, uh, many of the mounds, by Squire and Davis, and this is their map. The other bigger, larger circular earthwork down there is called the Shriver Circle, and uh, that is so eroded away, you can't really see it with the naked eye, but uh, an archaeologist several years ago uh, ran his magnetometer over it and was able to locate it. But he had to go inside the maximum security prison located there to oh, yeah. uh, to actually inside the courtyard there uh, finish off the circle. So part of that now exists in the maximum security yeah. prison in Chillicothe. Jesus. <laughs> and there's an Army Corps of Engineers right down the road, too. Right. Now, uh, there's Squire's uh, il uh, draft illustration. You'll notice it's sort of cut and pasted. So he probably had some other drawing underneath it and redrew that and then cut it out and then pasted over uh, in a couple of places where those earthworks were. Now, um, what I'll say about Mound City is that uh, Mound City has been reconstructed twice over. <laughs> it was first destroyed by the federal government in World War One. They built a, uh, a training camp there called Camp Sherman. And uh, it covered this whole entire area and obliterated all of those earthworks. And after World War I, the uh, Ohio Historical Society, now the Ohio History Connection, went 
and petitioned the federal government to uh, excavate the remains of whatever mounds were there, which the federal government agreed to, and to then reconstruct it. There was a local guy by the name of Spetnagel who pushed the federal government into naming this a historical uh, a U.S. historic monument, mm. which happened. And uh, so this has been in federal ownership, you know, forever, essentially. Well, the Ohio History Historical Society back then reconstructed the earthwork based on this map right here because the earthworks were gone. Um, And so uh, in the 1950s, the um, park, which was kind of— it was owned by the federal government, but the Ohio Historical Society had sort of leased the site as a as a park. Mm. Um, and the locals who wanted this to become a historic monument were getting pretty frustrated that the Ohio History Connection back then, Ohio Historical Society, was not improving it in any way. They had taken all the artifacts back to Columbus and were in the Museum of Columbus. They expected that there would be a museum built on the site so locals could see the local artifacts. That didn't happen. And so they petitioned the federal government to kick them out, and uh, they did. Um, The National Park Service then took over the site, and uh, they determined uh, that— the Ohio Historical Society, who had been given a lease to operate the site as a park, was not given a lease to do the excavations of the mounds and take all the artifacts. And so they requested the return of all that, which the Ohio Historical Society refused to do for more than a decade. So, no, we're not doing it. And refused to give the artifacts back until uh, there was essentially going to be some federal action against them, and then they coughed up all the stuff. And so all that got returned to the federal government. You don't own this stuff. You're not really endearing them to me. You don't own this stuff. How how can you own history? Inexplicably, in the 1960s, the the National Park Service archaeologists decided that they better go through and re-excavate all this stuff to figure out whether or not they did the right job. They did not find that the Ohio Historical Society did an appropriate job in reconstructing the mound sites, found that some of them were located in the wrong places, and so on and so forth. So they re-excavated the entirety of it and reconstructed the entirety of it a second time. Jesus. And uh, and that was with the cooperation of uh, the uh, head curator of the Ohio Historical Society at the time, Raymond Bobby, was involved in that. Um They were contracted by the federal government to provide those archaeological services. They then never uh, wrote the final archaeological reports that were part of the contract. And it took another 10 years after the excavations were completed and the reconstruction was done before, like into the 1980s, before they finally gave the uh, final excavation reports to the federal government. Just absolute laziness, <laughs> corruption. Yes. I mean, come on. What are we looking at here, people? Uh, is this all of really— this is, All the... of this is detailed in the administrative history of Mound City, by the way. I didn't uncover that stuff. Uh, it's written about uh, <laughs> in the administrative history. So in any event, uh, you can see there's some differences between these, uh, uh, you know, gateways or in different locations and so on and so forth. But um, 
here is another earlier illustration by Squire. Uh, that's quite a difference between it's the pretty, Shriver Circle and the weird. Shriver Oval there. Yeah. Uh, we'll show you another another one here. So he had done a full-page version of Mound City. Again, this got consolidated into mm-hmm. this double map. And so this is Squire's full version. Of course, it's never been published. This was not used by the uh, by the different uh, you know organizations to reconstruct the site. This might have been more helpful uh, to see where all the mounds are located, uh, more specifically with measurements and all kinds of stuff. Uh, here's another version. This is the most interesting version. This is Davis's version. Okay, now I don't know if you can see on the on the uh, left side uh, that Shriver circle illustration has really dark lines to it as compared to the Mound City illustration above. Right? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Okay, those really dark lines are to depict ditches. Ah, oh, like okay. concave. Yes. And then the lighter <clears throat> versions are showing the earthwork itself. Mm-hmm. So what do you see in Davis's illustration here is you see the outwork of the earthwork in an interior ditch. Yeah. Which none of the other maps Whoa, show. Are you telling and me that is not part of the reconstruction? No, it's a it's a total built up <laughs> right. wall around the entire site. Right. Well, this has a wall, but the, the this shows that there was a ditch there, right, like Newark Circle, where Correct. there's a ditch that right. makes that. Now, whether or not that's to... true or not is wow. uh, I mean, it they makes should sense. maybe maybe reevaluate that and maybe you know go out there and, and test for that uh, because. Davis was much more meticulous in his artwork and in his survey work, and this is a, a really interesting survey of uh, Man City, uh, but with potential real-world archaeological implications. Right. Right? So that gives you some sense of uh, that site there. And uh, now this site is the Hopewell Earthworks site. Mm-hmm. And so this is Squire's version of it. Uh, d- can you read the uh, title of that down in the lower right corner? I don't know. It's hard to read from this angle. Yeah. It's called, he has it labeled the North Fork Works. Okay. Okay. Um, m- the branch of the river there is the North Fork of Paint Creek. And so that's why it got why it's labeled on there North Fork Works. In the text of ancient monuments, they don't call it the North Fork Works at all. They call it Clark's Works. If you notice, uh, there are some buildings that are pictured in the in there. In kind of the center area, there's a house there that's labeled Clark's. He's the guy that owned the site, and so uh, Squire refers to it in the text as Clark's Works. Uh, during Caleb Atwater's time, he uh, also had a survey done of these earthworks that he included in his 10 earthwork list. And uh, it was owned by two other guys at the time uh, that I write about in the book. But in 1892, 40-some years after Squire and Davis, uh, or 35 years or so, um, Another archaeologist by the name of Warren K. Moorhead was hired by Frederick Ward Putnam of Harvard University to excavate the site on behalf of the World Columbian Exposition, more colloquially named as the Chicago World's Fair uh, in 1893. So in 1892... 
Uh, Putnam hired a bunch of archaeologists that went all across North and South America, and they excavated all kinds of stuff. And Moorhead started at, at Fort Ancient and excavated there, and then he moved to this site and excavated here. And he excavated many of the mounds during his uh, time there. Um, and he recovered about 400,000 artifacts from this site, which went on display at the Chicago World's Fair. And because he got the cooperation of the current landowner, he named the site after the current landowner, whose name was Mordecai Cloud Hopewell, former Confederate War soldier. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> and so the Hopewell Culture National Historic Park is named after former Confederate soldier Mordecai Cloud Hopewell. <laughs> Which, how does that connect <laughs> with anything? And that's where you get the name of the Hopewell Culture, right? Correct. And that's named after a whole race of ancient people. That's like calling the Egyptians the, the Hopewells. Right. Like, what? It's so, it's so ridiculous. The Chevrolets. <laughs> it is so ridiculous. The Ford it, Earthwork it's, it's a really terrible practice from the archaeological community that it's they name the site yeah. after oh, the landowner, the current lazy. landowner. So we could have had... The Clark culture, or we could have had it named after the guys that Atwater, you know, yeah. were, had it around. But it 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 was because of the popularity of the exhibit at the Chicago World's Fair, and the fact that two guys from the Smithsonian also helped Moorhead excavate here, as well as Harvard University, that in the archaeological community of the day in the 1890s, this became known as Hopewell's. And Hopewell's culture, right? Mm, wow. And um, and it wasn't until, you know, the early 1900s that, uh, that William C. Mills of the Ohio Historical Society then compared the artifacts from this site to the Adena Mound site that he had excavated and determined that those were two separate uh, different peoples on different time frames this is long before carbon dating or anything like that and so he determined that that those were separate cultures um archaeologically speaking and so that sort of became codified at that point that this is now hopewell culture gotcha. versus adena culture versus the another group fort ancient culture i guess just to keep your ducks separate a little bit back then to at least I get it, but it just doesn't it's, seem it's like... It's a nomenclature issue. Absolutely, right? absolutely. But it's also, it just to me, it speaks more of like to really digging for the answers of who were the constructors or what, right. what's going on. Like, where did this... Yeah. I don't want to just describe it's some just, random... It's just super unfortunate that now it's named after some Confederate war right. soldier, right? I agree. Okay, so here is um, uh, Squire's illustration draft illustration of that. And you can see there's a lot more detail on here. Um, and uh, we'll show you a couple more versions of this. So there's Atwater's version from 1820. Um, and one of the things that I did, once I understood the issue with, uh, with ancient monuments, uh, being these illustrations being attributed to Squire and Davis, but not really by them. It was really by these lithographers right. and the woodcutters. Ghostwriters. This is the same situation with Atwater. Oh. And so. Oh, okay. So uh, the American Antiquarian Society in Massachusetts published this. 
So I reached out to the American Antiquarian Society of Massachusetts, and I asked them if they had any of the original illustrations that Atwater had sent to them for this publication. And out of the 10, they had five. And so I have all five of those in my book from 1820. And so I don't don't have them here, but I'll show you. uh, Yeah, there it is. I put it on the cover. It's also included in the in the illustration. This is the color edition, hardcover edition, volume one. That illustration there, it was in color, a color map of the Hopewell Earthworks from 1818 and and uh, made it into Atwater's uh, publication in 1820. Uh, and so I go into the historical details of that in the book. So that's I put incredible. It, I put it on the cover. It, amazing that it's in color, To first of that's, all. That's what got me. Yeah, I was like, what do you mean in color? Uh, but it's not the only one. Really? Um, in fact, Atwater's version of the Newark Earthworks is in color. <laughs> and so that one from around uh, 1818. Atwater's version of the um, four ancient earthworks in color from 1807. That's so crazy. <laughs> and and so I included all, all of those and talk about all those in the book. And they're amazing uh, color illustrations. Again, Never before published, never before cited by the archaeological community. It's just shocking. It's absolutely shocking. So it's incredible. Uh, in any event, uh, that's a that's a little fun tour down down history lane with the uh, Atwater stuff. Now, uh, yeah, there's the full kind of version of that that I put on the front. You can see part of it's torn at the bottom corner there, and there's a little red mark up at the top. Um, so this is this is you know really early, early work. And you can see that there's some differences between the details that are that are seen here versus, you know, uh, 35 or 40 years later around, uh, around the time that Ancient Monuments was published, how the site had changed after being farmed for that long, right? Yeah. That's not the earliest version. Jeez. Hello. Okay. Um, this version is actually... This is Squire's version from his field notes. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind yeah. of really squished or whatever. Um, but I, I put it up there so people see what what he was working with when he went out to the site. Um, and then there's this version, Whoa. which I believe is the earliest version. Wow! And I flipped it upside down to correspond with all these other maps. But you can see the writing uh, there is uh, you know turned around. Yeah. Um, the writing that's on there, on, ironically, has nothing to do with earthworks. It's like uh, a bunch of uh, information on plants and stuff. Weird. Um, medicinal usage of plants. Oh, that's um, interesting. But the drawing was done by Dr. Daniel Drake, medical doctor from Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio. And uh, he went around and he did survey maps of about 20-something sites about 10 years before Atwater. And he aimed to publish all this, and he had written a manuscript, but it never got published. Um, but I uncovered his manuscript. Uh, his manuscript is located at the Wisconsin Historical Society. And uh, I was able to use that material, and I transcribed all of his notes. Again, never before published, never before cited. So this dates back 
to somewhere between 1807 and 1815, don't have an exact date, but sometime in that time frame. And actually, there's another version of it that um, that Drake did that has the exact survey measurements and all the, uh, uh, marked out on the map itself. So this is cool. Yeah. So here is the uh, Hopeton Earthworks. I mentioned those earlier. This is one of the seven UNESCO World Heritage Sites now. Uh, this is part of the Hopewell Culture National Historic Park. This is literally across the Scioto River from the Mound City. It's literally on the other side of the river. And the, open to the public? It's or open to the public. This, okay. Yep. You can go and visit this one. And... Uh, most of it is destroyed. Uh, what the National Park Service has done, they, they did a magnetometer survey of the site, and they have identified where the walls of the earthworks were located, and they're now cutting the grass in the shape of the earthwork. Uh, they call it interpretive mowing. And so, <laughs> and so you can sort of go out there and visually see the representation of the earthwork uh, where the grass is taller. <laughs> wow. So uh, it's it's uh, a unique way of representing the earthwork. Uh, rather than reconstructing it, uh, they just, uh, you what? know, mow the grass in the shape of it. Why not reconstruct it? Money. That's a great question. I've asked that to the National Park Service. Uh, I don't know. Uh, they, they seem reluctant. Uh, but I don't understand. These people think backwards to me. Yeah. All yeah. these institutions. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, so here's uh, Squire's uh, drawing of that. Again, another cut and paste job. Yeah. Yep. Um, but I want you to pay attention to the little box in the lower right. You see those two weird kind of circular yeah. earthwork things? Okay. And I also want you to pay attention to the big avenue coming off yep. of that. Okay. So the intersection of that is at the circle in the square, right, mm -hmm. is where that path comes, comes in there. And you're going to see some changes when we look at some of these other versions. Okay, so. Whoa. What just happened? That's is going directly into the side of the square now. Yes. <laughs> but in pencil, you can see another avenue there, hmm. right? Were there two? Oh, oh okay. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, it's very avenues? faint. The two earthworks in the little box down the bottom are actually on the other side of the highway today. <laughs> um, and that is oh, those wow. other two shaped earthworks. So now you have some sense of scale yep. in where those earthworks were located versus being in this weird supplementary box down in the corner. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And the shape of the kind of the double circle is now warped into this weird like heart shape yeah which is kind of interesting mm. okay so significant differences here between these drafts um here's another version okay Ooh. now this is flipped around i found this in squire's papers it looked like he had traced this and uh i tracked down the um in fact um Dr. Brett Ruby, uh, archaeologist, National Park Service, had actually tracked down the original drawing before I had seen Squire's version of it. And so uh, that was published in a magazine in like 1809. And uh, I tracked down that a little original illustration, which I'll show you here in a second. But note where the pathway is that comes off of the circle, not the square. Right. Right? Mm hmm. And it terminates in another circle. 
Mm. Okay. Oh, Circular okay. enclosure, right? Yeah. Okay. Now, those double parallel lines across that are damaged to the original photograph. Many of the films that I got from the from uh, Library of Congress had that damage, and uh, there's nothing I could do about that. It's on the, on the original photo, but it's not part of the drawing. Um, so, in any event, uh, this is what I also found at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Uh, Daniel Drake had copied this survey from an early governor of the state of Ohio, Thomas Worthington. And you notice, you can see Hopeton there. And where does the path come from? The circle, right? Not the square, not the intersection of the circle and square, but it comes out the circle, like that early map from 1807. Well, this is from about 1809. With all of the detailed survey measurements on it, the circle on the other side, on the left side, is actually the Shriver Circle on the other side of the river. Okay? Now, hmm. what's interesting about this long pathway ending in this circle is what's inside the circle. This is the only earthwork survey map that I've seen that has this detail on it. It says that at the center of that circle was a standing stone, and it gives the dimensions of the standing stone. And, and so there's notes about the standing stone that was at the center of that little earthwork circle. Wow. So that's really interesting. Uh, and who knows what happened to that circle? It's obviously not there any longer. Um, but uh, you can see the importance of these early, early survey maps with wow. all of this additional detail that you don't even see in ancient monuments, and yet eventually wound up as sort of watered-down versions in ancient monuments, right? Censored well, behind almost, the, right? Censored. I mean, not not necessarily censored. Not just censored, but... They're artistic impressions. Yeah. That's what I like to say. Yeah. <laughs> well, I like the little like behind the scenes clips and quotes and all. Yeah, like that's what you're saying really there. Neat. That's right. like you know the old VH1 behind the music. How'd you write that song? What did you know? <laughs> exactly. But so here's another example info. of some of those early versions. So what you have on the left is from ancient monuments. That is the High Bank earthworks, yep. which is a circle connected to a kind of a squarish octagon and a bunch of other other earthworks uh, around it. What does the earthwork uh, octagon look like in the one on the on the right? It looks more like a stop sign octagon, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that's a significant difference between those. Now, this one Almost was like a I found among Squire's yeah. papers. Well, the calendar. And this is kind of a mystery to me oh. as to who made this survey. Um, the only notation on it is down in the left corner. There's a little notation that says anastatic press. And I had to track that down. I'd never heard of anesthetic press before. They were uh, they operated in England, and uh, it ref the name refers to the process of the printing that they were doing. It is the anesthetic printing process, which was patented by the Siemens Corporation in the 1840s, um, and a company out of England. Uh, bought the patent rights to do the printing. And basically, instead of lithography, where you do the engraving on the stone or on a woodcut, you can take any illustration at all, pen or ink, 
and apply it to a special metal plate, uh, mostly made out of zinc, and it transfers the illustration to the metal itself. And then you can use that metal to do your printing. And it was kind of like maybe like almost like the earliest photocopying kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And uh, this was made by Anastatic Press, and somehow it wound up in Squire's possession in his papers with that weird octagon version. So it has to be earlier than Squire's version, but I have no idea who made it um, or how Squire managed to get a hold of it or how it got to England to go through the Anastatic Press process. and then wound up all the way back in Ohio. I don't have no idea why that's, that's funny. The case. Yeah, it's a weird um, chain of custody. So it, it's kind of a weird story, but uh, and maybe one yet to uncover more information about. Um, so weird. But I've never seen an actual printed version of it in a publication anywhere. Um, and I went through a bunch of Anastatic Press had a publication that printed all kinds of illustrations through the 1840s and 50s. And I looked through what's online and I never found anything that showed this. So, gotcha. I mean, it, there may be something out there. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we're getting a knowledge of early printing technology. Oh, yeah. I, yeah exactly. <laughs> this is more than history. Right. It's like, wow. So here's, another, here's another version. Uh, this is Squire's, uh, uh, you know, draft. And um, this is a little hard to discern from from here. Maybe your eyeballs might be eagle eye. But you notice that long uh, pathway that leads from the octagon towards the lower left corner? Yep. In the finished version on the left, about halfway down, you'll see there's a couple of mounds that are across that pathway. There are three of them. Oh, yeah. Well, if you look at Squire's draft, there's two. There's four of them. Oh, <laughs> it's four oh, across. Yeah. Okay, versus three across in the final version. So th- those are real world implications for how wide is that pathway? How many mounds are there? You know, those are the kinds of details that differ between draft, survey draft, and the uh, you know lithographic print. So lots of stuff like that. Um, lots of little little minute details that that make a difference in the real world. So you know, and then you have that version which I talked about anesthetic. This is uh, the version by Charles Whittlesley from, that was made for the Ohio Geological Survey, which I think is the one that was used for the octagon. Uh, Squire borrowed Whittlesley's papers, and uh, and there's actually a, a note in red down at the bottom. It was really interesting. Whittlesley, after the fact, when he got his papers back from Squire, went through and wrote in red ink every one of them that he loaned to Squire for uh, ancient monuments. And that's how you can tell which ones did Whittlesley get credit for and which ones didn't he get credit for, but serious? which ones he used. It's that easy to tell. <laughs> it was wow. So tell. he literally passed you notes all that's the way right. until you found it. Like, that's hey, right. Jeff, when you get this, <laughs> give me credit. That's What's right. for you, man? Seriously. <laughs> That's writing, so funny, too. I mean, writing notes to yeah. the future. Now, yes. now, I want you to look at carefully between all of those sort of miscellaneous earthworks on that pathway, you know, and down sure. towards the lower left versus what Charles Whittlesley surveyed. 
they're wildly different. Wait. I, I mean, they're wildly different. And so, you know, Whittlesley was a really good surveyor and was much more meticulous than Squire. <laughs> and so I think that there's something really scary about this, these map, you know, this map. There's a lot of. How far apart of, were they done in between? I can't even tell where About the 10 was. years. Do you think there's a possibility there was construction added on in between the two? No, I don't think that was the case. Okay. I think there's a lot of farming that was going on. And maybe what's on the left is a lot of interpretation. Like they walked around and they sort of interpreted the remains of what they saw. And uh, versus see. what what Whittlesley actually surveyed. You gotcha. know, there's, there's a difference. Gotcha. You know? Makes sense. Man, That's those are so. definitely two different... Okay, so this is a this is an interesting kind of another constructed map by Squire. This is of the earthworks in the Paint Creek Valley, uh, not the North Fork, but the Main Fork. Um, and so you have from the left, you have the site mound earthworks, then the bomb earthworks near the center, then you have Spruce Hill, uh, which is a kind of an earth and stone earthwork, um, and then a Kind of above the creek is another earthwork uh, known as the Bourneville Circle. And then you can kind of see the little village of Bourneville uh, up there, too. And so this is uh, – and there's another earthwork down there. Uh, they call – some people call it the Bear Claw or whatever. It's uh, another earthwork down below Spruce Oh, yeah, Hill. yeah, yeah. Okay. So this is Squire's sort of constructed map of all of those earthworks down the valley. And uh, this was modeled on another map by Atwater. Now, so here's Squire's draft of it all. So not much difference between that and the lithograph. Um, but then you have, uh, let me show you Atwater's version. So here's Atwater's version. And uh, you know, so you can see Sipe and Baum and Spruce Hill. And then there's a letter designation up above there for the, the uh, Bourneville enclosure. It's not drawn out in this uh, engraving print, which this appeared in 1820. So Squire clearly modeled his map on this map, but he added more details. Of course, you never give Atwater any credit for that or the surveyors that Atwater used to make all of this. Um, but nevertheless, I found At, uh, Atwater's original map or got it from the American Antiquarian Society in color. Partly. Nice. That's so cool. And um, and so this has a lot of additional details uh, uh, on the map and a lot of notes, which I transcribed, which are in the book. Uh, one of the interesting things is in the middle of the site mound earthworks, Atwater mentions that there was a small mound a couple of feet high, which was made entirely of red ochre. And that is on mm. the map in red. Uh, it's because this is in color. Uh, he designated it in red. And uh, what's interesting about that um, is right at the bend of the creek there around the site mound earthworks, um, part of the reason that Paint Creek got its name is because of the uh, minerals That's used as paint by the Indians right there I, um, wow. at Little Copperas Mountain, which is right there at the curve. Uh, that's where some of that uh, red ochre can be found. And so they literally dug it out of the hillside, you know, but they had a whole mound of it that covered a burial, allegedly. Um, by Squire and Davis's time, Squire is incredulous at that comment and says, 
that is not what we found. Uh, this is what we found in that mound, and he lists a whole bunch of different things. Um, and so it makes you wonder whether or not he was looking at the same mound or not, because clearly the people that did the survey, uh, Atwater didn't do the survey. It was a couple other guys that did the survey um, for Atwater. They, uh, they clearly had seen it with their own eyes and painted it red on their bat. Wow. And, and yet Squire says, no, no, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those bizarre, you know, sort of things. But these are kind of, you know, interesting, important details. So this map dates to like 1818, you know, like really, really early, early map. Yeah. So here's the Fort Ancient Earthworks, yet another UNESCO World Heritage Site. Uh, I should mention back on this other map that only of these earthworks here, only the Sipe Mound Earthworks was designated as a World Heritage Site. The other two have not been. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, just to kind of understand why that's the case, um, the National Park Service and the State Department, one of their criteria is to forward a nomination for UNESCO World Heritage Status to be voted on, the first criteria that needs to be met is that the site has to have um, a uh, be designated as a United States historic monument. And so uh, these other two sites have not been. Site Mound Earthworks was. Gotcha. Uh, but the other two sites have not been. Okay. So uh, Fort Ancient is also one of the, the seven UNESCO sites. This is owned and operated by the Ohio History Connection. This map was uh, credited by Squire as being done by John Locke uh, from the Ohio Geological Survey. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Locke did it after the Ohio Geological Survey ended. He did it around 1842. I'm going to show you Locke's published map. Um, and so th this is what you have here. Now, there's Locke's map, and I've rotated it to kind of try to match. And they're fairly close. Um, not exact. Mm -hmm. um, Locke got together with a local... A school academy and had about a dozen school age, uh, you know, maybe like high school age kids who helped him to do the survey. And I list all those people in the book. Um, so, you know, I mean, Fort Ancient is huge and it would take you forever to try to survey the site out. So he had a whole team of people that helped Working do that it. survey. Right. Uh, and so, but Locke is generally credited as doing this. Um, let me uh, see if I got, yeah. So there's Atwater's version. Okay. Now Atwater's version includes another big long extension, right? Coming off of that. That is shown as a sort of a supplemental feature in in the lithograph uh, in the lower right on the left image. As you can see, that long linear thing is actually the long linear thing in the upper right corner of Atwater's map, uh, which ends again in another enclosure with a mound in the middle of that enclosure. That's so weird. Similar to like Hopeton, right? Why were they leaving these off? Uh, good question. Uh, you know, but it obviously changes the map uh, and, right. and the whole of the earthwork, right? So 
uh, this is one of the maps that I got from the American Antiquarian Society. So you can see what the the printed version of Atwater's, you know, sort of map is look, looks like. And that was done by taking an original illustration and then carving it into wood, right? So it's super simplified. But the original survey map is much more extensive. And it's hard to tell here, but it shows that full entire thing with the extension, right? Uh, yeah. Just like on Atwater's map. But you see there's all kinds of writing all over the map. Those are all kinds of notes. It's in color. Uh, it shows where all the water courses are. Um, and uh, it has all kinds of archaeological details of the site, all kinds of archaeological features that they talk about. And um, this was surveyed in 1807 Whoa. by the Warren County surveyor. And uh, he almost didn't get this map to Atwater. Uh, it was lost in the mail. Uh, it literally, the, the courier, like, tried to cross a river, and it wound up floating down the river, and somebody else picked it up and got it to Atwater. And so it what almost, a neighbor back then. It almost <laughs> never made it to Atwater. Atwater <laughs> writes about this in, a, in his letter to the American Antiquarian Society, um, and uh, which is you know, it, it really interesting. But uh, I talk about the Warren County Surveyor and his background, and I you know hunted down a lot of that stuff. Uh, he was a Quaker, and um, he moved to Ohio you know, in the earliest days doing land surveying. Uh, and so he also had, a, had a, an assistant, and I talk about the who the assistant was too. But uh, in any event, uh, really early detailed stuff. Again, never been published before, never been cited before. That one's lucky to have made it. Yeah. I don't know. You, you seem like you've taken a break already. Do you want to stop him first? No, second? no, not at oh, all. Okay. It's an emergency. So I mentioned Spruce Hill uh, a few minutes ago. Uh, this is the Spruce Hill earthwork. This is Squire's full-page version of that. The walls of this are mostly made of stone and earth mixed together. Yeah. And um, let me show you here. This is uh, his draft of that. Okay. Wow. Uh, so they're fairly similar in in uh, between the two drafts. They're not... Uh, a lot of differences, um, but I want to show you Squire's earlier uh, draft of it. So this is uh, much more detailed. It shows like a lot of property boundaries. It shows directions to other nearby earthworks, which is important, um, and it shows uh, some details of features in the in Paint Creek, which uh, Atwater wrote about and which uh, Squire dismisses as being anything. So what Atwater wrote about was that uh, in Paint Creek, they found several what appeared to be uh, constructed wells uh, with stone circular about three feet across with blocks of cut stone down into the bed of the river. Uh, And... And Atwater kind of, and they had lids to them, uh, which in, when they were discovered, somebody tried to peel off one of the lids and broke it. Um, and so, you know, Atwater writes about that feature. Squire says that it's a natural thing and it's not a constructive thing at all. Um, and again, dismissing what Atwater had written, you know, 25 years earlier or whatever. So the features were still there. 
allegedly, maybe, when Squire was there. Uh, since that time, there's never been an archaeologist that's ever gone out there and reported on those features or even looked for them, as far as I know. Um, and in fact, uh, very little archaeological work has ever been done about this site. Um, Brett Ruby from the National Park Service did a very minor excavation along one of the gateway walls down at the very southern portion of it mm-hmm. um, around the year 2000, I think. Um, not a lot. Uh, you know, this is an enormous site, uh, one of the most important, you know, earthwork sites. I, I uh, <clears throat> worked on a on a effort to preserve this site around 2007. It went up for auction, and we had about two and a half weeks to raise about a million and a half dollars to save this site. Um, it is now owned by the uh, Ark of Appalachia. At the time, they were known as the Highland Nature Sanctuary, and they were the lead organization that helped to preserve the site. But um, myself, my wife, uh, friends of Serpentman, we also helped on on uh, raising all the money for that. Kudos. Pres- good preservation job. They really did site. a good job with that. Oh, yeah. So that's awesome. Here All right, is what man. I think is the earliest survey done again by Daniel Drake. And the dots around the outside are his survey points. And he's got the measurements uh, and the degree measurements for all those different features and sites. And I include this in the book. So this is probably a survey of it from, I don't know, sometime between 1807 and 1815. Hmm. Um, and, uh, again, never, never cited, never published before, uh, but earliest survey for sure. He had a second version of it, a little more cleaned up, again, showing the gateways down at the bottom, just like the, like all the later ones showed. Interestingly enough, though, um, in the, in the book, I don't have it in this presentation, but in my book, he also did a drawing of the, one of the wells and he shows the cut blocks, uh, in his drawing. So, you know. Daniel Drake, five to ten years before Atwater, had already seen those features and had drawn them out. And so I include that illustration in the book, too. Squire just doesn't seem like the most, like, <laughs> well-balanced judge of certain things in some of these instances where he's like, oh, of well, course, again, you just— You know, he's— it just he's, seems He wasn't irrash- trained as a scientist. He seems irrational. And he's, you know, a young a guy. Dude. He's in his, he's in his mid-20s. 20. Right? He said me like, dude, <laughs> I was a complete moron when I was 25. But why would we listen to this guy if he's not trained in any of that? How did he get to put his stamp of approval book. on it? Right. Yeah, yeah. But they, he the, became the, the man. The vicars right. write, you know, the history. And there right? was no internet. Yeah, no internet. Hey. All right, so here we are back to my original bit about Serpent Mound. So there's the final version uh, in Ancient Monuments on the left. And uh, here they – it's dated to 1846. That's what Squire and Davis, uh, you know, said is 1846, when they went and visited it. And um, this is a test – lithographic print that I uncovered at the Western Reserve Historical Society. They have a collection of Squire's papers, and their collection of Squire's papers included all of the test lithographic prints for ancient monuments. So when Squire went to New York City and was working with Saronian Major, they would work on doing the the lithograph, and then they would print off a test print, and they would hand it to Squire, and Squire would look at it, and he would make editorial comments on it, 
if something was spelled incorrectly or something was in the wrong place. He, and those are the marks that you see X'd out or whatever on there. And then he would resubmit it and they would make their corrections and then they would run another print. And so there's literally a stack of all of the test lithographs from ancient monuments at the Western Reserve. And so I include a handful of them in, in my book, uh, some that are more notable than others. Um, in fact, there was one test lithograph of a mound site in Wisconsin that was never included in ancient monuments. And so uh, I include that in the book. <laughs> uh, it, it's, uh, it's a kind of a mystery as to where it came from. Uh, don't know who did the survey of it, uh, you know, but uh, nevertheless, it's an important uh, yeah. site in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, it's called the Dividing Ridge Earthworks Today. Uh, but had not been surveyed by anybody at the time that these uh, lithographs were being printed, as far as anybody could tell. So uh, kind of an interesting uh, one. I might have a picture of it in here somewhere. Uh, but this is another test lithograph with different editorial marks on it. So you would see that there was a kind of a process on how they kind of recreated this stuff. Um, but I want to show you how different the original drawing oh, was. Oh, boy. That's okay. look at the horns. And you can still see those by the way when you go there. Yeah, the one on the north side uh, is much more intact than on the south side, uh partly because it was reconstructed by Putnam in the yeah. 18 uh 80s, late 1880s. Um but one of the things you'll notice is that there's a really big mound mm. kind of near the tail, spiral tail there. Yeah. On Squire's final version, it's a bit smaller, but it's labeled uh B. And this has been kind of a puzzle with archaeologists. Uh, first of all, the mound isn't there today. So, you know, did this thing exist or did it not exist? Um, Squire and Davis ostensibly went there, so it must be there, right? Uh, they included it in their map. But why did it gain, get the name B? Well, some people thought, well, maybe Serpent Mound is Mound A and that other mound is Mound B. But I don't think that's the case. Um, and Squire and Davis's information about how they learned about Serpent Mound is really kind of shady. Um, there's not a lot of information about it. Uh, they reported that they got a report from somebody that said that there was an unusual shaped fort there. And so they went out to look at it, and lo and behold, it turns out to be this big Serpent Mound. But they didn't say who gave them the information. They didn't say, you know, where it came from or, you know, whatever it was. But I think I figured it out. Um, in James McBride's papers, which I reviewed, um, there is a survey that was done of Serpent Mound. And I think it was probably the survey that was done before Squire and Davis went there. And that's how they learned about it because they borrowed all of James and Bride's papers. Uh. So they didn't give him credit for informing them. Uh, but McBride's survey is, is very interesting. Uh, a lot of surveyors essentially survey from point to point. And so McBride's survey is literally a dot, 
to another dot, to another dot, to another dot. So it looks like this weird zigzag. So he went to like each point of the curve and did a survey from each point of the curve. And uh, like for the oval, it's just four dots that make like a diamond shape. You know, like he didn't survey out the whole, you know, thing. So it's very rudimentary, but it's clear that that's what it is. You can see what it is, yeah. And so the idea that Squire got this information, you know, doesn't credit McBride for doing the first survey, then they go out there and then they come up with this. Um, you know, obviously there's some differences, right? This is much more detailed. <clears throat> mm-hmm. um, now, one of the things that the, that archaeologists have commented on about this illustration is how terrible a survey of Serpent Mound this is based on the the print, right? The lithographic print. They've not seen the drawing that Squire made, right? Um, if you look and compare the differences between the two, one of the things that that the criticism has been leveled is, well, they got the curves all messed up on the other one. It's all screwed up. It's not the same. But if you look at the one over there, it's much more true to life than what the lithograph looks like. So the lithographers didn't do a really good job mm. capturing what Squire did on the opposite side here. Um, and I think that that those are important details to understand. Um, some details on the on the lithograph don't appear on Squire's draft, like the central stone altar in the middle of the oval. That's uh, not on Squire's draft. Right. However, in his field notes, it's there. And I think I have the field note illustration in here. I can show that here in a second. Um, so it's kind of a mixture of stuff. Yeah. You know, they knew that the detail was there, so he had the lithographers at it, but it's not on this version. Right. So the old stone altar, the mystery yeah. of the stone altar, that always fascinated me. Mm-hmm. So here is one of the illustrations wow. from Hello. Squire's field notes, and it shows the stone altar in the oval. Mm. Okay. Um, here is another that. drawing that he made. This is actually his his notes. His this is the entirety of his measurement notes on the on the left and his sketch on the right from his field notes. Wow. So not a lot of detail. I was hoping there would be more than this, <laughs> but there's not a lot. And uh, so that's the sum total of everything that Squire had in his field notes about Serpent Mound. Not a lot of detail, uh, which makes you wonder if Davis did more of the work and somewhere out there, maybe Davis's stuff will surface one day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that would be exciting to see. Be that would be really cool. So in any event, uh, you know, different changes. One of the interesting things I found among Squire's papers was this drawing, um, which I think is re- related to his Serpent Mound stuff. Because what I'll show you on the on the reverse of this, um, on one side of the page is this spiral of a serpent, right? On the on the other side of the page, if I get to it, he has this drawing of this serpent going back and forth, and look what's down there at the bottom of it. You got the open jaws, and then there's this figure in front of it. And he's got a couple versions of it. And you can see the ink bleeding through of the spiral on the flip side of the page. 
Mm. What I think is going on here is that Squire got information about what this site was, and he was attempting to work out in his mind what this site really was. And so he's doing these sketches about, well, it's this serpentine oh man, and then there's this thing in front of the open jaws, and he's kind of drawn that out there. And then he said, and then they said, well, and then there's a spiral, you know, feature. So he's drawing this spiral serpent, and he's like got bits and pieces of it in before his head he gets there, yeah. before he gets there. Uh, yeah. It's that's like he's problem. remote viewing it or something. <laughs> yeah. you know, and he's like, this is what I think it looks like. This is and what they're describing to yeah. me, what this thing is, right? Yep. That's what I think this is. And I found these notes in Squire's papers at the, at the Library of Congress. So you can kind of see that the thought process yeah. was. Well, you know? this spiral serpent. Oh, it's a spiral serpent. No, right. not like that. It's in the tail. and Yeah. Yeah. How, how much longer you guys want to go? <laughs> I don't even know what time is. Well, we're almost toward eleven, huh? You got a two-hour drive back, so yeah. that's well. Let's let's we can start. Let's go with one little more big on story it, here. Yeah, so, for sure. Again, this is another one divided into quarters, right, to save money. But the one I really want to focus on is the one in the lower uh, left corner. And that's the alligator mound. Oh, oh yeah, yep, the alligator, uh, which is in Granville, Ohio. Poor alligators surrounded Licking by county, surrounded by. There's Davis's drawing of the alligator mound. I think that this drawing was the one that was used as the basis for the lithograph. Um, you can kind of see how they took the intricate shading that Davis made of the earthwork and then had to try to recreate that for the lithograph in, in the area below and how those details sort of change as a result of going from this more sort of advanced shading technique into what you see in the in the lower corner. How do we get an alligator? That's out what of that I was going to ask because that looks okay. more like a possum or if something. That's so that's a fair question. A, that is a fair question, okay. and I write about it extensively okay. in the book. <laughs> okay, it's not just there's, me where I'm like, did I fail the test? <laughs> I don't get it. Did there's I fail a big, the alligator? There's a big section that <laughs> I call test. how the alligator mound really got its name. Okay, perfect, okay. perfect. Um, and I'll get to that here in no a second. No problem, no problem. Um, but I want you to see how much more detailed Davis's work is versus what Squire's is. And and you wonder if Davis had been responsible for doing all the drawings, how much better we would have had a quality, uh, you know, in terms of, of the artwork. Davis's name should have came first. Davis looks like a legit artist. <laughs> yeah, he's good. He's Better than so what I can do. Talented. He's doing science. He's doing archaeology. He's an artist. I mean, the guy's Medical talented. doctor. Medical doctor. Wow. He, he had uh, pioneered Dude's some surgical man. practices, too. He was a surgeon. All right. So this drawing right here is how the alligator mound got its name. When Squire and Davis were working um, on researching the book, do you see that map in the lower right corner? Mm -hmm. That's another one of these constructed maps. Um, and that was one of the few that I did not find a sketched version of in Squire's papers. But on this map, just to the east of where the alligator mound is located on that map, is another hilltop earthwork fortification. And uh, Squire and Davis did a survey of that, and I have 
drawings of that in the book, uh, draft illustrations of it in the book. And uh, it's in the ancient monuments, too. Um, but while they were there, they learned about the alligator mound, which was just to the west, about a mile, mile and a half. Okay. But they didn't go and survey it at the time. What they did was they wrote to the landowner. Uh, landowner's uh, name was Aylesworth. And Aylesworth took a few months before he responded to um, uh, Squire and Davis, and he wrote them uh, an eight-page letter. And in the letter, uh, he describes that he wanted to appropriately answer Squire and Davis's many questions about the mound on his property, uh, but that he didn't know at the time much about the thing, and so he decided to educate himself a little bit about mounds and earthworks and about this mound in particular before he responded. So that took him several months to do. He then did an excavation into the mound, a major excavation. He excavated a bunch of different parts of this thing. Um, and he describes all of them and his findings in this letter back to Squire and Davis. And on the final page of the letter is this illustration with the measurements and down there, upside down to our view, but down there in the lower right corner, he calls it the alligator mound. That is the only place in the letter that he refers to it as the alligator mound. In the rest of the letter, starting from the very first sentence down through the whole entire thing, he calls it the, allig the, the crocodile mound, the lizard mound, the dragon mound, the <coughs> reptile mound. He sometimes calls it the image. Uh, and he uses those interchangeably, all interchangeably. And so the very last page... He says it's labeled the alligator mound. Squire and Davis, on their drawing, have it in quotations, alligator, in quotations, mound, based on what Aylesworth named it. He's the landowner of it. He named it that. So they use that nomenclature because that's what Aylesworth named it. That's how it got its name. Wow. Okay. Again, now, no expert of... The history of what, the, you know. Right. Now, the reason that this is important and the reason that I write about it extensively in the book is because that is not the story that is being presented to the public over the past 30 years. Okay. Do go on. Okay. <laughs> so in the early 90s, there was an effort to try to preserve this mound by uh, a group called, I think it was called the Licking County Archaeological Society. And the guy who headed that up um, and Brad Lepper from the Ohio Historical Society co-edited a book about a bunch of the earthworks in the Licking County area, including Newark Earthworks and the Alligator Mound and some other mounds. And in one of the chapters, each of them were written by different people. Uh, the one that was written by the guy from the Licking County Archaeological Society, a guy by the name of Paul Hogue, he wrote that he believed that perhaps, maybe, the Alligator Mound might have gotten its name from the earliest settlers that went to Granville and may have encountered some Native Americans, and they told them that name. 
and they sort of maybe mistranslated it. Mm. Okay. And so that was what appeared in the, in Paul Hoag's um, uh, doctoral thesis that he wrote and in this edited book that he wrote in okay. his article, which was largely based on his, on his academic work. Uh, several years go by and a developer buys the whole farm property, including the Alligator Mound, and an effort is made to convince the, the developer to preserve the mound, which he agrees to in the middle of a cul-de-sac in the, the housing development that he is planning there. And so they basically draw a circle around the mound and enclose it uh, in a cul-de-sac in the neighborhood. And he gifts the cul-de-sac property to the um, Granville Historical Society. And as they uh, were bulldozing around for creating the cul-de-sac, one of the bulldozers clipped the front left paw, southern paw of it, and kind of exposed some of the interior, which somebody identified as saying, well, I think that like, looks like charcoal or something in there. So they contacted the Ohio Historical Society. Leper comes out, and he scoops up some of that material and sends it off for carbon dating and gets a carbon date, which he doesn't particularly like very much. And so he petitions the Granville uh, Historical Society, who owns the site, if he can do a, a bigger excavation into it, which they uh, allowed him to do uh, essentially illegally. Uh, the developer. How, how, how? Oh, okay. The developer, when he gifted the property to the Granville Historical Society, it was under the condition that at no time ever in the future, in perpetuity, is there to be allowed any digging into the mound? No excavations. Hmm. And Leper somehow convinced them, let me do it, I'll do it. And so they did. And he dug into the mound. And he got different carbon dates, which he liked better, and he published that. And in his— What didn't he like about the first one? Uh, well, it didn't match his theory. See, okay. now this so, is the stuff we talk about now, all the time in his on this peer-reviewed— show peer-reviewed scientific paper that he published on this, much of the article is about how did the alligator mound get its name? And he essentially steals Paul Hoag's idea, his co-editor's idea, from just a few years earlier. He says he came up with the idea in 1998 which is several years after they'd already headed to that book where Apollo already put the idea forward. But nevertheless, he says that he came up with the idea, and he writes it out that the earliest settlers of Granville met with the Native Americans, and the Native Americans said that this is an image of Mizupishu, the underwater panther, and they said it's a big monster that lives in the water with big teeth and eats people, and the Granvillian dumb uh, settlers said, oh, we know what that is. That's a crocodile. That's how the crocodile man got its name, which is 100% complete invented nonsense. It came exactly from the landowner writing to Squire and Davis, which is why they put it in quotation marks. 
It has nothing to do with what Leper has been telling everybody for the last 30 years. He has been going around on videos, on podcasts and interviews. Claiming this? Claiming this You story. can't get away with this Seriously? stuff anymore, guys. You just can't. <laughs> Seriously? Hey, for well, 30 this is, years, this shit's he's gotten a lot end. of mileage out of claim this it, story. And we've got it right here. This is You've got the joke. smoking gun, so sorry, sorry, Brad. Shame so on you, man. Look for another route, buddy. Shame on you, man. So it, Try again. You're supposed I, to be a beacon of... As I, as I write about in the book, integrity. I say, I say what, what Leper wrote is an archaeological hallucination. Yeah. This flat He's out just invented nonsense. Taking some ergot. Ego. Yeah. It's just Getting ego. some ergot poisoning. Yeah, so, yeah. People are crazy. In any event, uh, you know. Wow. It's, it's right there. If so uh, I include this uh, letter page in, in the book, and you can read about some of that in the book. It's interesting. Uh, I just wanted to – this is kind of, uh, you know – rearranged version of that. But uh, I did want to show some of the color uh, illustrations that are cool. in Davis's um, right? uh, unpublished manuscript, which is now included in my book. Uh, so if you buy the color edition, you can see them in color. The black and white edition, you can see them in black and white. But uh, this gives you some better sense of what these uh, artifacts, what kind of stone these artifacts are made out of, different colors, and uh, they're pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, lots and lots of stuff that they found. Uh, Davis tried to sort of group them and sort them, and he was kind of doing early typology of different uh, uh, blades. Obviously, there's no such thing as carbon dating or anything. So they didn't know about different, you know, cultures of time or anything like that or different usage rates. Here's some that has some obsidian pieces that they found Ooh. and different ones. Uh, of course, then there, there were all the little effigy mound pipes. All of these came out of one mound at Mound City. Um, and in ancient monuments, uh, they're not in color. And so you just get these black and white pictures of them. And uh, out of the five or so slides I'm going to show you of these uh, effigy mound pipes, many of these were not pictured in ancient monuments. And so the, they've not been generally pictured to the public. You have, you, you, if you want to go see them, they're at the British Museum today. <laughs> if you want me to tell that story, I can, how they wound up at the British Museum. Uh, but nevertheless, you can see they, got, they tried very much to get the color correct on these, and they're very well detailed. Um, Davis hired an, an illustrator in New York City to produce these. So these aren't done by Davis, but um, these are done by uh, a different artist. But uh, he commissioned these to be done. And, uh, you know, so you got uh, some interesting ones. Now, I, I believe that um, one of the serpent ones down in the bottom row, I think, uh, actually came from the Hopewell site and not from... Um, not from uh, Mount City, but most of these have, are from Mount City. And, and again, several of them were not uh, originally found. Now, uh, I think this is close to the last slide that I, I brought, but um, this is a kind of an interesting collection of stuff that Davis had uh, put together for this illustration. Uh, he calls them stone tablets. Mm -hmm. Now, the one in the upper left corner yep. is 
called the Cincinnati tablet, yeah, and it's famous. showing the front and the back of it, okay, uh, and, the, <clears throat> side and the side of it, yeah, uh, which is kind of an interesting uh, way of looking at that. Um, the two in the lower, or the three in the lower left, are. Of of serpents, and those were all found in one particular mound at uh, at the Hopewell site. The one in the lower right, I talk about uh, very specifically because I don't believe Davis had that in his collection. He he also did not have the Cincinnati tablet in his collection, but he had a cast of it uh, made. Uh, the Cincinnati tablet. Uh, was found in uh, a mound uh, in Cincinnati that was being leveled to create a road, and uh, it never left the property owner's uh, possession until after he died. And then it went to, like, this local newspaper publisher, uh, Robert Clark in Cincinnati, and he eventually donated it to what is now the Cincinnati Museum Center. Um, and so it's really had just a couple of people in his chain of custody. So we know kind of where that went. But Davis had gotten a cast of it. And uh, and so it wound up here in this in this collection of stuff. The other one down in the lower uh, corner came from a mound in the complex of mounds that included the Grave Creek Mound in West Virginia. Oh, boy. It didn't come from the Grave Creek Mound specifically, but from a mound in that complex, because uh, there were a bunch of mounds around it. And that's where that came from. And that was written uh, by a guy by the name of Henry Schoolcraft, who was an anthropologist uh, and uh, Indian agent for uh, Congress, uh, who worked in the 1830s and 40s and into the 50s, wrote these huge volumes about the Indian nations in, in the United States, sent a lot of reports to Congress. Um, he uh, married an Ojibwe woman in Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan, and lived in, in Upper Michigan amongst the Ojibwe for many years, um, and wrote quite extensively about uh, Native Americans. And he wrote up... And made that illustration, and that's sort of a copy of that illustration of that tablet uh, from uh, the Grave Creek Mound area. And then there's some other assorted bits and pieces there. There's kind of like a spool shown on end and on its side. And uh, But I, I kind of wanted to show that uh, little feature there. And uh, I don't know if we want to go much farther. There's, I mean, I could talk all night. There's so many sites. But... Um, <laughs> One of the oh, things man. about this that I talk about in in the book is um, I mentioned the Grave Creek Mound, mm -hmm. and there's a tablet that was I'm found gonna ask that you. was controversial, right? Yeah. We've um, covered it. We've talked about it. I refreshed my memory. The Bat Creek Stone, the Grave Creek Stone, the yes. Newark Holy Stone, these are all these, like, out-of-place Artifacts that maybe right. have ancient Phoenician, ancient. What was on this one? Ancient Hebraic. So it had some some letter forms uh, with kind of some lines that that you know somebody was following to create the letter forms on it, and it was kind of a round a round tablet. That's so. Um, and I talk about it extensively in the introduction of my book because um, Henry Schoolcraft was the first one to write extensively about that Grave Creek Mound tablet. Um, 
And then Squire wrote about the Grave Creek Mound tablet in Aboriginal Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. Uh. Um, And he writes several pages about it. Uh, And he essentially says that it's a fake. Um, And his proof that it's a fake hinges on the fact that another guy who wrote a book before him about uh, ancient peoples out of mounds um, didn't include it in his book. Therefore, it must be a fake. Wow. Which is bizarre zero research. logic. Just yeah, not good scientific logic. Doesn't yeah. make sense. And so um, the guy that, that, was, that wrote this other book, his name was Samuel George Morton. And George, Samuel George Morton is notorious because he's the guy that did all these cranial studies of people in which he would measure the volume of a person's skull and then from the basis of that determine like the class level or IQ or so cultural like development. Early, early was this phrenology? Probably. Yeah, phrenology. And so <clears throat> he was the he was the guy that really developed the so-called science of that. And he uh, had heard that the Grave Creek Mound was going to be opened and excavated. And so he sent a friend of his who lived in Wheeling, another medical doctor. George Morton was a medical doctor in Philadelphia. He sent another friend of his from Wheeling down to observe the excavations, hoping he might get a cranium from the excavation. Sure. And so that guy and another guy who was a newspaper editor of one of the papers in Wheeling, the two of them went to the excavations and the excavations took months and they observed the excavations as they happened and wrote detailed notes about the excavations. And when the excavation got to the center and they found, you know, uh, some burials and a bunch of artifacts, they then started digging up through the center. And as they dug up, they hit another burial chamber, found some more mounds, and found this engraved tablet with the letter forms on it. It's all the way in there. Okay. Now, the stuff that they... The the, the reason that the mound was being excavated was the landowner wanted to open it up as like a living museum. You could pay your ticket and go in, and he hung lights in, they put like mine shaft stuff, and you could go in and see all the stuff. In place, in the mound. It's big. It's yeah. huge. It's, what, it's at one point there. was the second largest, well, the ma- right? It's, it, or the third largest it's, in America? It's the largest conical mound. Conical mound in America. But it's the second tallest mound yeah, uh, in, after Kogia. Yeah. yeah, it's big. Or, or maybe third it's tallest. It's still there. Yeah, yeah. The mound is still there. Yeah. The shafts going in are not. Yeah. They've, that's all collapsed and covered in or whatever. But for, you know, several years in the 1840s uh, or late 1830s, you could go in there uh, and and see the stuff. Now, this tablet was not considered to be anything unusual or out of place or that wasn't sensationalized. The guy that, you know, you would think if he's opening a museum for economic reasons, they might, you know— like advertise that they found this. Yeah. Nothing. 
This yeah. guy didn't, nobody thought it was anything big. In fact, James McBride and one of his co-surveyors went to go see the mound two weeks after it was open. And I found James McBride's notes about all of the contents that he observed, including the tablet. Shut and up. he doesn't even say it's anything special. What? Okay. This has been a hot button topic. This Right. Tablet is kind <laughs> of a big deal. So, uh, you know, I think Will from Incredible History, we talked about this tablet with him. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just a little insider note this yeah. is the mound where that Mothman was seen. The big Mothman sighting was at this big giant mound. Didn't know that. Above. Yeah, that was one of the Mothman sightings. So, Grape Creek Mound. So, Squire, uh, you know, says that it's because George Morton didn't include it in his book about cranium of these you know, prehistoric peoples, then it's a fake. And ever since then... That's what he based it off of, was the phrenology yeah. And guys? they're still running yep. with it. Now, he wrote, still he wrote several it. pages on this in Aboriginal monuments. This is terrible But when it work. came time to put it in ancient monuments, all of that was edited out. This is just bad research. Motive. And the Smithsonian edited it out, and they replaced it with, like, a one sentence thing that says essentially uh well this tablet is kind of controversial and uh until we get more information about it we're not going to write about it okay so here, here let me tell you a little bit of the rest of the story so the guy that the medical doctor that went to go and observe the excavations he wrote this extensive report and sent it to George Morton and Samuel George Morton used some of the bits of the report in relation to his cranium stuff because that's what his book was about. It wasn't about everything else. He just edited all the rest of that stuff out and didn't use that material in his report. He didn't think that it was fake or not fake. He didn't make any comment about it whatsoever. He just didn't include it because it was didn't pertain to what he was writing about. Squire is the one that jumped to the assumption that that meant that it was fake. But that was not the case. It's just not what he was interested in. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> because Squire and Davis's book was so notable and so popular and was so influential, the American Ethnological Society wanted to do an investigation to determine the authenticity of the tablet. Because Schoolcraft, before Squire had written his his screed about it being fake, had written about how it was authentic. And that was published in the American Ethnological Society Journal. And then Squire comes along and says, no, it's a fake. And so there's this academic debate that was set up. And so they decided they were going to do a big investigation. And they hired this uh, sort of historian slash uh, archaeologist who was from the from that area in West Virginia. This is before it was West Virginia, by the way. Still Virginia, Jeez. you know that didn't have you know West Virginia didn't happen until the Civil War. So this is still Virginia. So he's from Western Virginia in that area, and he later worked for the Smithsonian. But he went. And he did this massive investigation, got affidavits from all the people who were, uh, you know, worked on the excavations, people who had seen the tablet, anything that had been written about the tablet. And he put together this gigantic report and then uh, gave a presentation in New York City at the American Ethnological Society with Davis present, Squire present. 
and showed all the evidence showed that the tablet was authentically found in the mound. Okay. Completely authentically found. Everybody testified that that was the case. And that people testified as the patina on the tablet being authentic. Uh, there was n- no one that, that had seen the tablet and had examined the tablet that didn't uh, believe that the tablet was not authentic. Squire had never seen the tablet in person. Okay. The guy who was the newspaper editor who was accompanying the medical doctor that had gone down there met up with Squire because Squire wanted to see the tablet on his way to New York City to do the lithographs for ancient monuments. He, they go to uh, the town of Moundville where the mound is, uh, you know, where Grave Creek Mound is, and the owner at the time was not there. The tablet was not available for them to view. Squire was in a hurry, never saw the tablet, jets off to New York City, writes his stuff, and that's how it ended up the way it ended up. Garbage. Now, okay. So the newspaper editor was furious when this came out that because he provided the drawings and illustrations of the Great Grave Creek Mound and the tablet for Squire, which shows up in Aboriginal monuments, but not in ancient monuments, although the Grave Creek Mound illustration is in ancient monuments, doesn't credit the newspaper editor at all. <laughs> for the drawings and the illustrations. And so the newspaper was really, really ticked off about it. But he never wrote anything in his newspaper about it. But later on, he moved to Portsmouth, Ohio, became friends with a guy by the name of G.S.B. Hempstead, who Squire ripped off his map of to create the map for the Portsmouth Earthworks. They became friends. He established the public library in Portsmouth, Ohio, He's like a, you know, uh, kind of an advocate of the mounds and the earthworks. Yeah. And there was an old archaeological uh, society of Ohio back in the 1870s, and they had a meeting in which they did the exact same thing. Big investigation on whether the Grave Creek tablet was authentic or not. Presented that material at that meeting. The, the uh, attendees, all the so-called archaeologists in the 1870s, voted on authentic, authentic or not, came down as it was authentic. Unanimous. Unanimously authentic. One of the people in attendance was Charles Whittlesley. No oh boy. Charles Whittlesley had written four articles saying the tablet was fake, had never seen the uh, uh, tablet in person. But the problem is, is that this is still the narrative today. The it's Smithsonian just, says this. Ohio History is connect. the tablet still around. Ohio History. So the connection. tablet is now missing today. Yes, God, it's missing. Okay. And in the Bat Creek Stone. Interestingly enough. Oh my gosh. Uh, Losing all my faith. Another here. researcher acquaintance of mine. Um, what are you saying? He went to the Smithsonian, like back like 30, 35 years ago. And was looking through some of their material about Squire and Davis, and they had photographs of Squire's artifact collection from the 1870s before Squire sold it to, or it was like 1860s, before Squire, uh, before Davis sold it to the people in England. And in one of the photographs is a Grave Creek tablet. So it's unclear whether Davis owned the original tablet or he owned like 
like a, a copy of it, a replica cast of it, a cast yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that one of those casts, or maybe this particular cast that was in the photograph, wound up at a museum in Denmark. What? <laughs> hey, we got somebody over there. We're going to have to tell them to go check it out. So we got some listeners in a Denmark. Story that we got a boy we to this week over there. Yeah, we'll a story that I uncovered was that we'll talk to him. Um, a kind of an ambassador from Denmark visited New York City in 1860, went to a meeting of the American Ethnological Society. Davis and Squire were both members at the time. Davis uh, was put in charge of a committee to go through the collections of the American Ethnological Society and pick out a handful of stuff to return the favor of a gift that they got from Denmark. Uh, The ambassador gifted them a bunch of prehistoric artifacts that were excavated out of mounds in Denmark. And so to return the favor, they were going to give them a bunch of artifacts from mounds in the United States. And so they combed through, and Davis was put in charge of the committee to determine what artifacts. And they come up with a list of about 15 artifacts, and Davis then gifts them another 15 from his own collection, including a cast of the Grave Creek Tablet. And, and several other casts. So I reached out to the Royal Museum of Denmark. And they said, yes, we have some of those artifacts still in our collection. And they sent me photographs of them. And they said, but back around the turn of the century in 1906 or 8 or something like that, they took some of those artifacts and sent them to another museum in Denmark called the Museum Odense. So I reached out to the Odense Museum, and their curator said, yes, we still have those artifacts, and they sent me pictures of the rest of those artifacts. So for all of those that believe that all of the Davis collection is at the British Museum, that is not the case. Some of the artifacts wound up in Denmark. Everything's <laughs> just scattered in the wind. Wow. Right? Right? Wow. How are we really supposed to put all this back together then? Yeah. you got to have so, Jeff's brain on it. But That's even out. then, like, we still <laughs> can, but there's still going to be... Unknown. Oh, like still at that me- at that me- that meeting to uh, to uh, give the results of the investigation of the guy in Western Virginia about yeah. whether the the Grave Creek Tablet was authentic. Squire got up afterwards to give some remarks, and these were covered in the newspaper articles of the meeting at the time. He thanked the investigator for his diligent work. And agreed with him as to the tablet's authenticity based on the investigative work. Now, that never saw print. Like, Squire didn't write that down and publish that anywhere. It was a comment that was captured by the news reporters who wrote the articles at the time. But this is the thing, is if you talk to the archaeological community, they say, well, well, Squire said it was fake, therefore it's fake. They don't report that he recanted that. It's the exact same thing with Charles Whittlesley. Whittlesley wrote four articles saying the tablet was fake. Then he goes to this meeting where they produce the results of the investigation with all these affidavits and analysis of the tablet, chemical analysis, all this kind of stuff. And everyone in the room, unanimous, 
tablet is authentic, including Charles Whittlesley, right. who went and attended the meeting, was there as one of the vice presidents of the organization. And he voted to say in the affirmative, it's not a fake. Does that get reported? No. The archaeological community today still says yes. Charles Whittlesley says it's a fake. No. Squire says right. it's a fake. Both of them recanted that position after the fact. Didn't Brad Lepper write an article in the Columbus Dispatch like 10 years ago about the Grave Creek Stone being fake? I don't know. He and writes how, a lot of nonsense, so I don't really you I know, mean, literally, like not says. that long ago. I don't know. They, someone I, from well, OHC wrote it. He article. may have, because I think I recall that article. It yeah. was actually a th- another person who did some investigation who now claims that the guy that uh, the medical doctor that did the uh, report for Samuel Morton, yeah, yeah, he actually paid for some of the excavations because they were going to stop excavating or whatever, and he wanted to see what was in the interior of it, so he helped pay for the excavations. Here's another 20 bucks, guys. Let's get out of it. And so this anthropologist from New Jersey, I think, or New York City, now says, well, that's motive for faking the tablet so he could recover his money from from the excavations. But they never publicized this. They never sold the tablet. They never really made a thing out of it to try to sell tickets. So the economic motive really isn't there. So I kind of dismiss that. Or they're that. just really bad at being. But a I think Lepper reported on what that guy is, you know, saying. But one of the things is that guy has never actually written an article. He like gave a presentation somewhere and gave those results, and so you don't really know exactly what it is that he based any of that on. But um, nevertheless. Whether I mean, the whether the artifact is authentic or it's not authentic. Look at the Wikipedia it, page is, about the Grave look, Creek Stone. It's, it's just a pure it's academic debate right away, at this point. Because no one knows where the tablet is. Stone. Yeah. And so it's it's a it, it, there will be no way of assessing the tablet's authenticity unless the tablet turns up somewhere. How can it be lost? I don't know. But some institution had it. Well, there's lots of casts of it. But, who but the authentic last? tablet, do we I, know? No, nobody seems to understand where it disappeared along the way. But you, because nobody thought that it was that big of a deal at right, that time. Right, right. They clearly didn't. No, yeah. they clearly didn't. They didn't make much mention of I it mean, in their their reports. The guy was only interested in a skull. So I oh, yeah. I go through this history of all this stuff in my I mean, introduction as sort of a, a, a an explanation for. Why did this material get cut out of Aboriginal monuments yeah. and not make it into ancient monuments? And so I talk about some of yeah, that history. Yeah, sure, but. sure. It's interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, who knows how much still could be hidden? Just right. So we've talked knows? about maybe 15 sites, if, if that, here, maybe 10, 12 sites. Yeah. But there are hundreds in the book, you yeah. know, and there are l- hundreds of stories like this. Um, well, you're going to keep some readers so. busy for a long, long time. Absolutely. Yeah. And l- like I said, you know, it was astonishing to me to find the material to begin with, to find out that none of it had been published before, and to say, hey, this stuff is really important. Right. We need to go back to the original primary source documents to understand the true history of this stuff. Here's all the original primary source documents. I put them in the book. So there should be no argument in the future. Go uh, figure it know, out. Yeah. My authority says yeah. this. Yeah. My authority says nope. that. No, just go back to the original source material. This is the original source material. 
But so. they don't care. They, I don't think they really care. They haven't cared about from the truth about the truth from the beginning. To me, well, like maybe some do, some don't. Got to start know. turning. These institutions have to start. Well, that owning you have to hold them accountable to, too. It's, it's thank you, hold yeah. them accountable. But also, that's like, part of what this book is about. Admit is, to is past to mistakes. Kind of correct a historical record. Going, hey, did yeah. you guys actually know that I could? pick up all these records and put this together and you could have done that, but you didn't do it in the first place. You know, it's, it's part of one of the reasons why I decided to publish a book myself rather than yeah. send it out to an academic publisher, because first of all, an academic publisher isn't going to publish a work this big, you know, 1300 plus pages that doesn't happen anymore. Um, second of all, I really did not want uh, any of this material to be edited out because some, editor somewhere doesn't like it for some reason. I wanted all these pioneer source documents to be reproduced so that people in the future have access to them and can see this stuff. Right. um, And can, and can see all of the original writings by the original, uh, you know, surveyors and excavators, you know, from the time that they wrote it rather than, you know, some guy's interpretation 50 years later, a hundred years later, 200 years later, so that people can actually see this original material. Sure. It's never been seen. It's never been written about. So this is what I've been living with for two years. That's and, a lot. And, Understand. Uh, you know, I'm yeah. happy that it's out there. I hope that people, you know, view it and can talk about it because uh, it's, the Ancient Monuments is a book that's got a legacy and yeah. it's still important today. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And to give the rest of the story about it, I think, is makes it much richer and 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 much more important to go back to. Makes me far more interested in it. Hundred percent. Knowing and, that it's been combed over again. And speaking of that, I don't think we've yeah. talked about where we can find the book. Oh, sure. <clears throat> and uh, right. now that we've kind of covered a tiny, tiny, tiny portion of of what you've all put together, right? Let me. Uh, we do uh, have you're talking about that. I'll flip yeah, back to that yeah, original and, slides. So the book is available exclusively. At Lulu.com. It's through print on demand. I decided not to put it through Amazon because I don't think Jeff Bezos needs any more of my money Um, or anybody else's money for that matter. Fair point. He's like the richest guy on earth. He doesn't need any more money. So I did not make it available through Amazon. I made it available only through Lulu for that specific reason. Yeah. Um, And I also don't want, you know, a zillion copies printed around sitting in a warehouse somewhere. I'm yeah. a little more ecologically minded. If you want it, they'll print you a copy and send it to you uh, kind of thing. And the quality is just top-notch, outstanding stuff. I, I was really, really pleased with how the quality of the book came out. So here is the three hardcover editions. Part of the reason Beautiful. that there's three hardcover editions and only two paperback editions is the manufacturer can only put so many pages into a hardcover edition. Right, right. And they could not squeeze all the pages into two hardcover. They could in a paperback, couldn't do it in hardcover, so that's why there's three. The only difference between the two uh, editions, the hardcover color edition versus the paperback, is I recognize how expensive these were. Um, I I wanted the highest possible print quality for the hardcover edition, so they're in color at the highest print quality on the highest quality acid-free paper, and so those are like archival editions. If you're really a fan of this book, you're really interested in this material, it's high but quality. they are expensive. Yeah. The 
paperback editions are in black and white, and I was able to combine them so they're a little bit cheaper. Very um, cool. But each each one is you know you know so six to seven hundred pages each. You know. Uh, yeah. so. I still I think people are going to want to uh, again. You have. You have some very interested parties in, in subject matter like this, so I don't think you're going to have a hard time with people going to really enjoy these books. Got to get the word out, and I mean yeah, thoreally enjoy them, even just, in those. Just hard. to give you a sense of the cost of these versus the original edition, uh, the original edition, which was published by the Smithsonian, sold for ten dollars a copy. Wow! In eighteen forty eight. If you run that through a inflation calculator, that comes to about five hundred dollars today. That's insane. So it's about five hundred dollars to buy an original edition back in eighteen forty eight. That's wild. So if you buy the paperback editions, they're seventy nine each. So they'll cost you about one hundred and fifty bucks or one hundred sixty bucks, uh, you know, with shipping. But that's you know. Three times less than the original edition. If you want them in color, it's more expensive. But I think it's know. worth it. I think. But the, you get an extra thousand cover. pages, and you get all this bonus stuff. You know. Yeah. The, the the only other difference between the hardcover editions and the soft cover is because there was a third volume. I decided to write a preface for the second volume that's not included in the paperback edition, because um, I write a, an extensive introduction chapter. And an extensive postscript chapter uh, in the final edition, I decided to write an additional preface mm. for the, the second edition, which is about um, ancient monuments in the 21st century, uh, kind of the contemporary uh, you know, experience of it. I talk about how it was written during the pandemic how it affected how I was able to access, you know, the archives to get this material, how we can reproduce this material as it originally should have been seen versus going through the lithographic process or the woodcutting process back in the day. So you can actually look at the original surveyor's work, right? right? You know, um, I talk about how this book may be one of the last books written without the aid of AI. Oh, you know, wow, yes. GPT. Uh, none of this was written with GPT, partly because, like, all of the, no, almost all of this material has never been digitized before, uh, and and uh, I made it a point not to create a digital e edition of this book because uh, you know it doesn't need to be in Chat GPT AI mm. uh, you know for somebody wow. else to rip off because that that's just a giant plagiarism program right you know it just plagiarizes the entire internet pulls from everything <laughs> pulls from everything and uh, so none of this material is fed into Chat GPT you won't find it there so you know this may be one of the last books that ever gets written without that. Um, it's interesting. And thoughts. so I, I kind cool. of frame up the book in that sense, uh, in that in that extra, uh, you know, sort of preface. Never even considered the the era of real, you know, human creativity unadulterated we might be coming it, to an end. And we're going right. to see it end. Very soon. I find that uh, uh, the extensive postscript chapter I, I found really interesting to write. Um, there's a lot of little sort of interesting side twists to the lives of both Squire and Davis after Ancient Monuments came out and what happened to them and, what, and how they ended up. Um, Squire, for instance, gets uh, committed to an insane asylum at the age of 52. 53, um, 
And that's a really interesting story, what happens to him. What? Um, wow. <laughs> well, all those years lying, he just got up, <laughs> caught up with you. He, uh, he wound up in a debtor's prison in England for a few weeks, uh, you know, in the 1860s. Uh, you know, he had, he had some, you know— he was appointed by Abraham Lincoln as a as a, a government ambassador to Peru during the Civil War to negotiate uh, to get uh, bat guano for making munitions for the Union mm-hmm. Army. I mean, he did all kinds of crazy stuff. Uh, and so I talk a, lo- a lot Holy about Moses, their yeah. sort of postscript days. Uh, Dude, you back know. in the day, people accomplished a lot. I well, mean, at 25, he was already lived a whole lifetime. Right. Yeah. Well, you're not going to. College I think I think he was 20, 27 yeah. or twenty eight when Ancient Minds was published. But still, oh, maybe you're getting to work great. at like fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Like getting at the discovering stuff at seventeen, or you know, I yeah. well, there was no Netflix and TV, and there's right. not a lot you of know, distractions to slow you down back then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. you're gonna get to work, or you're gonna be real bored. Squire yeah. Davis uh, died within one month of each other in New York City. Interesting. Um, wow. Davis is buried in Chillicothe in the in the cemetery. You can go and view his headstone. I have a picture of it in the book. Uh, Squire is buried in New York City in a in a cemetery in New York City. Very cool. But uh, so I you know I try to frame up the book in those different terms. Um, I include uh, several appendixes of some of their early magazine articles, which people have not really paid attention to to read. That's so cool. early versions of Squire and Davis's writings before ancient monuments, uh, you know, stuff like that. So it's neat. It's kind of a big, giant bonus. That's why I called it the expanded edition because it's it's like you know almost like. Uh, Almost like uh, the director's cut, you know, yeah, <laughs> or something yeah. like that. Without them being around, you know, it's uh, it's a huge uh, extra bonus stuff. So if oh, you're a yeah. fan of any of their work, you'll hopefully learn a lot more f- of, from all the other stuff that I put in the book. So, well, I'll tell you what, man, you really deserve a lot of credit for the work you put into this because it's, I mean nobody baffled. else except Jeff would do this. <laughs> It's a lot. <laughs> I just remember hearing like, oh, hey, I, I don't know if it was a first, second time we had it. We we're like, oh, when's the book coming? Oh, it'll be. And then it was like, hey, Jeff ran into like 200, 300 more pages he's going to have to go through. I was like, what? Like yeah. this poor guy? Like he's well, going to be know, buried under all this material. It was Prince's wild to <laughs> see that, you know, uh, I would I contacted a lot of institutions about their collections that I thought might have some play in this. And. It really wasn't until, like, springtime this year that a number of those institutions started sending me what, back to what they finally mm, had. And yeah. I got hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff that I had to sift through and determine what I was going to use and what was interesting and what I put in the book. And, you know, um, sure. I tried to use as much as I thought had never been seen before, never been published before, never been cited before. Yeah. Um, and it was just hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff, you know. So uh, I write, you know, kind of historical commentary about the different bits, um, you know, that fit in between. That's all integrated in. So you get, you know, kind of a historical sense of a lot of this stuff and why it's important, what's important about it as we go along, who these different people were that did all of this work. Because, you know, Squire and Davis didn't do all the work that's in ancient monuments. Like, you know, 50 other people contributed stuff to that. And, uh, you know, I found their letters and their drawings and included all that material. So, wow. 
It was a fun process. I learned a ton. Um, it was a lot bigger project than I ever thought was going to happen. But yeah. for me, <clears throat> the whole start of it was, can I find this early material of Serpent Mound? Check that box. So that covers, you know, that will be covered in my Serpent Mound book, uh, which, you know, I'm going to be getting to write in, you know, early next year after I get Emily Aldrich's book on the Portsmouthers works done, you know, and edited and published. Then, you know, and and that that will be a book series. I'm I like like this is multiple volumes. That Serpent Man book will be multiple volumes. Yeah. And um and that will be called the Serpent Man Chronicles. Cool. And so that that will be, you know, volume one, volume two, volume three. Maybe I'm thinking maybe is seven or eight volumes. Um, what? So that's how much material I've got. Jeez. Bub can't even comprehend that right now. Yeah. The volumes may or may not be <laughs> Dude, as, as thick as these. Here's they may the be thing. Thinner, but. With Jeff, this is only one thing he knows about. Oh, I know. <laughs> we could do I a five-hour podcast on just crop, or a ten-hour podcast on just mound. crop circles. We could do a ten-hour podcast on there's Serpent the, Mound. There's the paperback editions there. Um, Beautiful. So. Great stuff. Jeff, there you go, thank guys. you well, so for much for coming in this, and blowing our minds. This ran forever. I think we're <laughs> approaching Jeez, five hours right now. It's really, yeah. Well, I, like I said, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I stopped at the Portsmouth Earthworks, so we didn't talk about those. But, uh, you know, and then there's like a hundred other stuff. That's perfect. So. We'll leave some for next time. Yeah. I mean, this has been great. My mind is blown. I mean, this has been... That was a journey. Yeah. I that mean, was a that, journey. We got a history lesson in yeah. not just earthworks, but, you know, early lithography and, and all kinds of other <laughs> oh, yeah. ways How to capture to learn about all that. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> it's wild. Because, and, and to understand why that made a difference in what we see. Right. It totally has right. to. I mean, it's a big, big, it's a huge part of the story. It we really, take really granted is. how easy we can and do all this stuff And us being photographers now. and videographers, like, it really, really was cool to, to learn about all that. So, yeah. um, you know, uh, Jeff, you want to just let everybody know where we can connect with you? Um, sure. Can you can order you. the book direct at Lulu. You can just do a search on Ancient Monuments uh, or in my name, and it'll come up. Or you can go to serpentmoundbooks.com, and there's a link that'll take you to order the book. You can go there either way. I have uh, a couple of writings about the cover illustrations that you can see at serpentmoundbooks.com that kind of give you know, why I selected the certain images for the front covers of these books. So, sure, cool. you know, I talk a little bit about the history of who made these illustrations and why I selected them for those book covers. Um, you know, so you may get a little benefit from if you're interested in that stuff, you can go there and, cool. and read about that. Um, if you're interested in the Friends of Serpent Mound, you can go to serpentmound.org, find out about our events, our summer solstice program, or, you know, you can go to the to the uh, um, Perseid Meteor Shower event or, you know, so there'll be events that, that are listed there that you can you can participate in and uh, that all that stuff is free to the public. So. Cool. Yep. And if you guys are really, really interested in this stuff, join the Friends of the Serpent Mountain Facebook group. It's yeah, awesome. pretty active. I talk, I talk about stories from the book in there and, uh, you know, we – have discussions. I, I usually post a lot of news stories about, you know, mounds and earthworks and prehistoric stuff there. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of uh, interested people and a lot of people that just want to learn. And, 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So. It really is a great community. You guys have, you know, with Bev and your wife and everybody that's a part of Friends of the Surf Mound. I mean, you guys really have done a great job of creating community. Well, um, we really thank you guys for coming out and helping us at the at the Summer Solstice event and doing all that filming and the sound. And yeah, it's been it really fun. helps you're us welcome. out. You're, you're very, very, very welcome. We had a blast doing it. Um, but guys, I think we'll. I think we'll, I have a. I have a couple of upcoming appearances and lectures. Uh, I've been asked to speak at the Frogman conference. Yeah. You're doing the Frogman hey, Fest? Hey, shout yeah. out to Jeff Craig. Jeff Mac Craig and Black. Uh, has asked me to come this year and speak about the book. Uh, so I'll be doing that event uh, in Very Loveland cool. in the spring. I think yep. it's in March. Yeah. Yep. Um, I've also been invited to the Friends of the Plains Mounds the, in the same time frame in March. Cool. So watch for those dates. Uh, I'm sure I'll have more upcoming speaking engagements and yeah. other podcast stuff. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll be out at Frogman Fest doing AV again uh, this year. So we'll be out at Frogman Fest. So keep your eyes eyes and ears peeled for that, guys. And obviously we'll be you know promoting everything that Jeff has coming up. And yeah, when Jeff Craig uh, called me up and he said, uh, "I want you to come and speak at the at the Frogman Fest," I go, "My book isn't about Frogman." <laughs> he goes, "You don't have to speak about Frogman. Yeah, you got he, other people to do that." <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's there'll very, be enough people there talking about. But Frogman. I, I've known Jeff for a long time because he he was a vendor at one of our early summer solstice events that the Friends Group had at Serpent Mound. He minted Serpent Mound coins. So if you're a coin collector, you might want to f- check out and find one of. Jeff Craig's minted Serpent Mound coins. That Shut silver, up. silver coins? I don't know what they were made out of. I think I have one uh, that, he, wow. that he gave me, but he was selling them there. Uh, this is before he, he made his maps, like his, uh, you know, Hidden Ohio map or his... Uh, his map in Black. That's map really black. cool. Yeah. Crafty guy. He is an interesting dude. Yeah. So that, I've known... I've, you know, known him a little bit for a long time. It gets to be a small world when you're talking about the strange in <laughs> yeah. Ohio. Yeah. You know, Jeff Craig and Jeff Wilson and, like, you know, a lot of people we meet have either met you or Thomas Johnson or Terry or it's right. just like, you know. Yeah, six degrees of separation. Yep. Yeah, very uh, quickly. Yeah, Tom, Tom, Tom and Terry are great. They live about four miles from me, so... Fantastic. Well, guys, we appreciate the hell out of all of you guys hanging with us tonight. Check out his books. Uh, yes, please. Everybody <laughs> go, you know, check out Jeffrey Wilson's new books. Um, you know where to find them. All the links are in the, the description. Uh, Jeffrey, we thank you so, so, oh, so. Thanks, appreciate you coming down. Thanks for me. I appreciate Absolutely. you uh, yes. let me come up and ramble on for a few hours. Yeah, that was stuff. rad. We had a great time. And we know you did out there. Please like, subscribe, share. Um, keep the reviews coming you guys know where to follow us you know what to do Um, much love and peace we're out later see you guys well done I'm thoroughly like overloaded (laughs) with (laughs) you